I want to invite you to stand with me as we receive this word together. I'm just taking a short passage from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going right in the middle of a story that's familiar to you. But here Jesus outlines the main commandment, the main point. He wants us to know it, and I want to just reflect on this this morning. In Mark chapter 12, we read these words. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. May God add his blessing to that word. Please be seated. I want to begin this message with one of the oldest prayers in the ancient church. It's a prayer that has been used throughout the ages to, to meditate on and to recite again and again. It's called the Jesus Prayer. And it's simply this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Jesus Prayer combines three biblical verses, one from the Christological hymn found in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul declares Jesus Christ is Lord. Then you have the Annunciation of Luke 1, where Jesus is declared the Son of God. And then the parable found in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the publican or tax collector, where the tax collector prays the simple prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want you to think about this prayer because I want you to understand the sting of it. Those last three words, me, a sinner. You see, that, that's my story. It's not that I didn't reach my potential. It's not that, that, I, didn't, uh, that I committed a, a, an error of judgment. It's not that I simply made a mistake. No, the honest truth is I am a wrongdoer. I am a damage causer. I'm a moral fraud. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a humbling statement if that prayer is prayed sincerely. Years ago, Michael W. Smith sang a song that echoed this prayer. You may recall it where he said, Lord, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, over and over again. And we used to play that CD in our minivan when we as a family would go wherever we would go. And I remember my son Micah, who was just probably two or three years old in his little car seat. He'd be there in the back and he'd be singing along with the song. But he heard it a little bit differently. And so he'd sing, Lord, have horsey, Christ, have horsey. It makes me smile to this day when I think of it. Well, as we finish this short series on statements that aren't in the Bible, but people kind of assume they are, I'd like to deal with this one today, where we, where we say, love the sinner, but hate the sin. 
And, and, and at first blush, that seems rather biblical. Sin is a bad thing. We're all sinners. We're supposed to love everybody. But this phrase is not in Scripture, and I think it is often used in a way that can be rather misleading. Now, Scripture, I want you to know, has a lot to say about sin. According to the Bible, how widespread is sin? Well, Romans, Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that, yes, I am a sinner, and yes, you, my friend, are a sinner too. As Eugene Peterson put it, to be human is to be in trouble. How damaging is sin? Well, Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, the scripture says. So sin brings about its own judgment. It, its payoff is always the same. It leads to death. And according to Scripture, how seriously then should we struggle against sin? Well, I would say to you it's very serious. We need to struggle. James put it like this, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The Bible describes sin in various ways with words and images to help us understand. One word, for instance, describes sin as wandering off the path, where, where we take a wrong turn and we end up in a place we never intended to be. Sin is that way. How did I ever get here? A, a, a very common word in the New Testament for sin is missing the mark. The picture that is painted is that of an archer with bad aim. And if you think about it, you don't want to be standing near a target when an archer has bad aim. Because a misshot arrow does an awful lot of damage. And that's what sin does. It causes a mess. It destroys so much. Some 200 times in Scripture, the Bible uses the word that means crooked, bent, twisted, or, or distorted. I can't help but think about our nation. So much is twisted and untrue today. We had a former president who resigned in disgrace and famously said, I am not a crook. But the Bible says there is crookedness in all of us. Sin is described as rebellion. It, it involves this defiance against God and against the moral order of how things ought to be. I heard the story of a four-year-old girl whose mother told her, listen, you can ride your bike down this far to the sidewalk as, uh, against this driveway, or you can go this way to that driveway, but no further. If you go any further, I'm going to spank you. At that, the little girl stuck her rear end out and said, well, you better spank me now because I've got places to go. And that's a true story. That's the human heart. Many dozens of times, sin is referred to as owing a debt because sinning against God or against another person always comes at a price. Forgiveness always costs something. Sometimes sin is called lawlessness. 
because to engage in sin means that I think I'm above the law. It doesn't apply to me. I, I, uh, I break ethical principles of right and wrong. The word trespass is related to this. It means I'm violating a boundary. I'm going where I should not go. And I might justify it. I might rationalize it. But it's sin. A minister parked his car in a no-parking zone in a large city because he was short on time. He couldn't find a space with a meter, so he wrote a note and left it under the windshield wiper that read, I have circled the block ten times. If I don't park here, I'm going to miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. And when he returned, he found a ticket from a police officer along with this note. I have circled the block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> you know, one of the most important words for sin is impurity. James says, purify your heart. Paul writes to Timothy, do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Maybe most famously, Jesus said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now that word purity can kind of sound old-fashioned, and maybe at times it's been misunderstood and maybe misapplied by the church. The church hasn't always gotten this right. But the notion of purity at its core means that there's a way that things are supposed to be where they're whole and beautiful and good. And we care about purity. We really do. At, at the physical level, let me give you an example. We have standards of purity. The Food and Drug Administration, they, they, they uh, regulate our food chain, and, and it has standards of purity that are not to be violated. And if you've ever read FDA standards, they're, they're actually a little concerning. For instance, if you have ever eaten apple butter, this is the FDA. If it averages four or more rodent hairs per 100 grams, or if it averages five or more insects, not counting mice or aphids, which are apparently okay, the FDA will then pull it from the shelf. Otherwise, it just goes right on your bagel and you've got the, you're, you're just okay. Mushrooms, mushrooms cannot be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. 19 maggots, fine, that's okay. Uh, that's, that's what their standard says. If there are more, now listen to this, it gets interesting. If there are more than 13 insect, insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste, the FDA is going to toss it out. More than 13, if, if there are 12 or less, apparently insect body parts are okay. I guess that doesn't matter, but we just don't want to see their tiny little heads there when you're eating your, your fig paste, whatever. Hot dogs. You don't want to know. I'm not even going to go there. They took out all the impurities of a hot dog. There'd be nothing left, I suppose, but... But, you know, that did remind me, we have the Newcomers Fellowship tonight, and uh, we're going to have hamburgers and hot dogs, and if you'd like to come, uh, we, we'd love to have you, you join us. It'd be great. You know, we care about purity. 
And that's my point. Purity reminds us there, there is, there's something we all know, there's something that we all count on, there's a way that things are supposed to be. And that's true of fig paste or mushrooms, and it's true of human character, and it's something impure destroys that. And boy, if it's impure, it destroys our bodies and souls. But it does incredible damage, not only to us, but to the world around us and to the people around us. And that's sin. It enslaves and it degrades. It deadens and depresses. This is something we need to be aware of. And the Bible takes it so very seriously, and we need to as well. But here's the thing. Sometimes in our conversations about sin, this is what happens in churches, maybe even here. We worry a lot of times about getting punished for sin. And sometimes we can make that the main message. Here's how you keep from being punished for sin. But I want you to hear this morning that Christianity is so much more than just avoiding punishment for sin. Christianity is an invitation to a new life where the power of sin is broken. Where you have such a relationship with God, you have fallen in love to such an extent with Him that you want to live differently. You strive to live differently. You live differently because of His goodness and love that's been poured out into you. The power of sin is broken. But this is what so often happens, it seems to me. How many of us have asked the question, okay, sin is bad. How much sin can there be in my life and, and I'd be okay? How much sin can I have in my life before I really need to start worrying about it? What's the acceptable level of sin? What's that sin zone that if you go higher than that, that's when you're in danger? Is there a limit, pastor, to the impurity I can have? Like the three rodent hairs and fig paste. Is, is this okay? That's the question we ask. But in fact, if you think about it, that's more like asking, how much cancer can I accept in my body before I ought to do something about it? Listen, the problem with sin is not that we're just going to get in trouble for it someday. The problem with sin, as Jesus makes so very clear, is that it keeps us from knowing. It keeps us blocking off our relationship with God that he wants us to have with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. My heart, then, is the lens by which I will see him or not see him. And so my question to you and me is, is it foggy? Is it dark? So what sin should I hate? Sometimes I think we 
twist something that Paul the Apostle said in Romans when he wrote, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. But if you understand what Paul is saying here, I would have you notice that Paul is not saying to hate the sin in somebody else's life, those people out there. He's saying, I should hate my sin, my coldness, my greed, my lust, my self-centeredness, and anything that would keep me from loving God and others sincerely. You know, I've seen what pride and ego and lust and deception have done in my own life and in my own heart. So, so I just simply want us this morning as God's church, and this is what we should do as a church, to ask you to surrender your will and give your life wholly to God. Hold nothing back. Give him it all. Lord, convict me of my sin. Help me to see those actions and activities and deeds and thoughts, Lord, that do not measure up to who you are. Lord, would you, would you prick my conscience? Would you reveal in me anything that is not of you, anything I'm doing or in fact have done? I want to confess it. I want to give it to you, O oh God, because I want to know you. Jesus said, this is eternal life. We sometimes think of our Christianity as a fire escape to get to heaven someday. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they would know the Father and the one whom he has sent. Do you know the Father? Do you know Jesus? Can you see him clearly in your life today? Listen, if I'm going to hate sin, I hate anything that keeps me from knowing God and experiencing the life he has to offer. Are you with me? Well, let's talk about the, the second part of this. Love the sinner then. Now again, at first blush, that seems like something Jesus would say. Jesus loved everybody. He was called the friend of sinners. Now, I want you to know that was that was supposed to be an insult, but I think Jesus kind of wore it as a badge. He was just kind of the sinner magnet. People just loved to be around him, and they came. But, you know, that didn't make everyone happy. In fact, he got in trouble because he spent so much time with sinners. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons they killed him. He came to help sinners. In fact, Paul wrote this. He said, this, is a, this saying is reliable and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But listen to me. You know, Jesus never said, love the sinner. But you know what he did say? Love your neighbor. You know what he did say? Love your enemy. He did say love one another. But he never said love the sinner. Now why is that? Well, I think for, for one thing, when Jesus said love your neighbor, that includes everybody. It's not just the person who lives next door to you. It's any person that you run into. Every person 
is included. We, we learn that in the parable of the, the, uh, the uh, great Samaritan. So sinners are already included. But I think maybe one of the reasons that Jesus never said love the sinner is because his followers would have gotten really good at looking for sinners. And what if this started dividing people up into these categories? Who are the sinners? Well, it's them, of course. People are like me who have got it right. Yeah, but, but they, well, they are the sinners. And then you get puffed up about it and you begin to say, hey, come look at me loving the sinners. I, I've seen that. I've heard it. It's interesting that, that Jesus hangs out with sinners all of the time, but he never says, I love you, but I hate your sin. What he does indicate is he talks with them a lot about God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's hope. And he says, you know, I love you. Why don't you get a fresh start with me? I can change your life. In fact, if you really think about it, the only time in the Gospels we ever see Jesus getting angry and irate and upset is when he sees the sin of lovelessness and judgmentalism. You know, Jesus also had this tendency of hanging out with religious people who thought they were really spiritually mature. And Jesus, at one point, tells the story. According to Luke, listen to this. This is amazing. Luke says, to some, he tells the story to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. In other words, they weren't sinners, but they sure thought other people were. And Jesus told that parable a parable about a proud religious Pharisee who comes into the temple and he begins to pray, but of course his eyes aren't focused on God. <laughs> He's focused on the neighbor next to him and he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Proudly. That's his prayer. And then Jesus, Jesus says, but listen to what the tax collector was praying. This corrupt Forgotten man says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And to the amazement and I think shock of those who were listening, it turns out that the tax collector is the hero of the story. In his humiliation and his brokenness and neediness, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, I, I think then maybe the reason that Jesus said, judge not, is because religious people judge a lot. I do. It, it, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's, it's almost comical, but it's a really kind of weird thing. The, the truth is, you know, if I give up doing something bad, I, and you could name almost anything here, but let's say it's drinking or smoking. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's swearing or bad movies or watching television shows you have no business turning on. Or maybe you start to do something good. 
You know, you, you start to exercise, or maybe you pray. You begin to read your Bible regularly. You give. You start giving a, a tithe of your income, or, or you start volunteering. Those are great things to do, but this is the way, isn't it the way the evil one works? And as soon as we begin to do that, our very next thought is so often, at least it's for me, what's the matter with other people? What, what's the matter with you? Why can't you be more like me? Why, why can't you do what I do? And so there's this little hypocritical, judgmental lovelessness that just begins to spring up within me in the middle of all my goodness. I see it going on in me, and I'm doing good at this and good at that, and why can't you? And ironically, it chokes out love. And don't forget, love is the main thing. Love is the first thing. It's the greatest thing. And so some of the meanest people I know in the church today would be happy to tell you how holy they are. And it should not be. I found a quote from Augustine Craig White. I don't know who he was, but I think he penned these words uh, nearly or over a century ago in a pamphlet by the abolitionist, American Abolitionist Society. And he wrote this. He said, self-righteousness is a strange kind of fire. It gives such pleasure by its warmth, but does so little to banish the darkness. And so at the end of that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus said these words. He says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen, so much of my learning to follow Jesus is to unfollow me. The Apostle Paul, listen to what he wrote, because I didn't give you the whole quote. There in the passage in 1 Timothy, he says, This saying is reliable and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let me finish his statement. He said, Of whom I am the worst. You know, when we begin to really see ourselves, then we begin to have something to offer to the world. So friends, just because I believe in sin and I'm against it, I can create this illusion that I'm better than those secularists, those liberals out there, those non-believers out there, those homosexuals out there, those transgenders out there, those sinners out there. You ever notice that Christians tend to get very angry at people who sin differently than we do? It is so easy, so terribly easy, it seems to me, to fall into that trap. For people like me to see sin out there and miss the sin in here. And it ends up damaging folks and ends up 
not loving and and I don't even know I'm not loving. I think I'm right. So let's not do that. In Romans, Paul writes, the kindness of God leads people to repentance. God's kindness leads people to repentance. If God is kind, we've got to be kind too. And I think it starts with humility. Listen, no surprise here, there are massive amounts of sin in our world. I mean, let's, let's think about it. The Cleveland area, it's sin-palooza out there, isn't it? You talk about crime, corruption, arrogance, greed, promiscuity, drugs, sexual perversion, godlessness of all kinds. We could go on and on and on and list the sins. And we're not even that far from Michigan. You think about that. We won't even go there. How much sin is in the church? <laughs> it's simple who's right in here. I'm the pastor. I get data on this. But how much sin is there in my heart? Scary. So much that I don't even fully know. I, I do know this. I do know this. There is enough sin in my heart that unless Jesus Christ came to this world and died on the cross and paid for my sin, I would never, ever get to know God. But Jesus Christ did come, and he did die on the cross, and he paid for my sin, and he paid for yours too. Let's hate the sin in us because it keeps us from knowing God Fully and becoming the people God wants us to be and messes up the world around us so badly. Let's hate that sin in me. So if we're going to be experts, let's be the world's leading expert, not at pointing out the sins of the world, but or, or let's not be the world's leading experts at, 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 at pointing out the others, but let's be the world's leading expert on our own sin and laying at the cross and confessing it and saying, Lord, I want to be more like you. Let's plead for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. Let's ask for freedom from sin's power in our lives. Let's humble ourselves. May we be a church in this house of prayer that says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you pray with me? I'll just ask right now that you just have some time with God. Maybe the sin he's revealing to you right now is that sin of judgmentalism. Maybe it's looking down on those people. Maybe it's something else. But I think if we'd spend enough time in the holy presence of God, something comes to mind. And he says, this is 
misaligned with my purposes for you. Are you willing to deal with it? Are you willing to confess it? Are you willing to let me have control? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of your scripture. It says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in this room, that we would want to see you clearly. Deal, Lord, with the impurities of our hearts, that we might have a clear view of God this morning, and we would relish this opportunity you've given us to know you, where eternal life is not something that happens when we take our last breath, but eternal life is knowing you today in this place because you're here. Eternal life to know the Father and the one whom he has sent. May you be our Lord and Savior. As we confess our sins, Lord, we are yours.